Hello, and welcome to the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast, brought to you by the Southern Arizona Office. My name is Matt Gubar. And I'm Charlotte Hart. Welcome to the second season of the National Park Service's Southwest Archaeology Podcast. We're starting off this season with an episode about a project that we're actually running. So Matt and I um, have intimate knowledge about the project and are excited to share this historic preservation endeavor with you. Um, So first, we'll talk about the project a little bit. Matt's going to give you a bit of a background. And then um, we actually have our interview today with a natural resource expert. And then we'll have our take home. I should also note that our interview with Andy Hubbard was done in the field. So as you start listening to the interview portion, you'll get to hear um, water application to adobe walls in our historic preservation project. So take it away, Matt. So the history of this project is really interesting, but the history of the National Park Service as an agency thinking about climate change impacts goes back several years. And that's both for natural resources, so plants and animals and ecosystems, uh, as well as archaeological sites and historic places. But this can be a really hard thing to do collectively because there are a lot of different resource types uh, and they're located in different areas with different climate regimes. So if we think about archaeological sites, Uh, Just as an example, we have 418 units of the Park Service. Most of those have archaeological resources, but they're all in different places. Uh, They're also different ages and comprised of different materials, so they're experiencing the weather differently. Uh, Some of the earliest examples of the Park Service thinking about climate change impacts for archaeological sites happened on uh, the coast in places like uh, Jamestown where archaeologists wanted to understand impacts that might be caused by sea level rise. So things like uh, archaeological sites being covered in seawater or affected by storm surges. In the American Southwest, we're obviously not concerned about sea level rise, but we are concerned about rainfall. Uh, We have a lot of resources like adobe walls at places like Tumacacri National Historical Park uh, that are really fragile and can be affected by rainfall. And um, anecdotally, a lot of the Park Service archaeologists who deal with adobe resources have recognized that rainfall events, particularly high-intensity rainfall events where we get a lot of rain in a short period of time, like 24 hours, uh, can have a big impact on adobe walls and can actually cause them to collapse. So this project was an attempt to try to understand the relationship between increasing, uh, increasingly intense rainfall events and uh, damage to adobe walls. The hope is that we can figure out some strategies for dealing with climate change impacts. We know that we can't change the weather, uh, but we can adapt and and create some strategies that will hopefully protect and preserve uh, fragile resources in the future. Thank you, Andy Hubbard, for joining me today. Um, I'm here with Andy Hubbard. He is the program manager for the Sonoran Desert Inventory and Monitoring Network, um, which has a physical location in the Desert Research Learning Center here in Tucson at the end of Broadway Road. Um, Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So this is a little odd because normally uh, Matt and I interview 
folks who um, have titles like archaeologist or archivist. People who know things. Uh, right, people who know things. And um, you are a biologist by trade. Right. So, um, so it's a little bit different for us. But I'm interviewing you because we're partnering on a project looking at uh, climate change effects on adobe walls. So we talk about historic preservation in the podcast, and listeners uh, might be interested to get um, a real 360 view of how historic preservation actually involves a lot of other uh, disciplines. So thanks for joining me again. And um, I wanted to start off just, can you tell us um, a little bit about the Learning Center and your program, and then we'll kind of look at how that fits into this Adobe Wall Project. Yeah, so the the Desert Research Learning Center, um, the intention of this place and what we build our programs around is exposing the public to science and parks. We focus on the 11 Sonoran Desert parks, um, so the 10 in Arizona, one in New Mexico. So we have public programs that are, you know, educational. So we'll have school groups out here or um, other clubs, things like that. But we also have um, folks actually physically doing science, collecting measurements, um, even analyzing data. Excellent. And so you're essentially looking at the um, ecological health of natural resources in those 10 southern Arizona parks. That's right. The one in New Mexico. Yeah. Uh, we can't forget about them. So um, how does a historic preservation adobe wall project fit in with your um, your operation here in Tucson? So for the Learning Center, I mean, that's really, we're trying to bring the public into the science that we're doing on parks. But the primary goal of our program, the Inventory Monitoring Program, which is a national program, is to collect information on natural resources that park decision makers, park superintendents and other leadership on parks can make decisions. And the idea is that um, we're, we're providing early warning of problems and we're also documenting if things are improving. So if we're trying a management technique, let's say a wall preservation technique, in the cultural resource world, you're also doing monitoring. In the natural resource world, we're maybe focused more on climate or water quality or biology. Um, but obviously at the park level, it's the same thing. Park, parks are managing natural and cultural resources it's almost a seamless exchange. Um, right. You can't basically focus on one and pretend the other doesn't exist. Exactly. Exactly. There, we've talked a lot in the podcast about how they're interlinked, essentially. Exactly. Uh, and so things like erosion from increased rainstorms during climate change yep. affect both uh, stream quality and you know, my very pretty interview wall. They affect lots of things, yeah. Yep. Um, you know, a lot of people would, would say soils are the ecological foundation of most stress ecosystems. So beyond even just localized erosion or effects on streams and water quality, which is enormous, um, you have you have um, effects in those terrestrial systems too that are that are long lived. So can you tell us a little bit about the um, atmospheric data that went into designing the research design? Sure. Um, so. Uh, in addition to our 11 parks, most parks in the southwest have a long-term climate cha- uh, climate station or weather station. And so these were established in many cases early on by the NOAA, the Nat- National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, and so the reason they picked parks was because the, the thought was that these would be sites that are not going to change dramatically. You're not going to have development happening, for example, on a park. And so they wanted to situate these in sites where the, the long-term data record would be stable from the perspective of what's going on around the park. Um, now, that hasn't always been the case. We have parks like Costa Grande where they change dramatically. Um, it's a small park and the areas around it. But because of this early sighting by NOAA, we have some of the best climate data on parks um, of anywhere in the southwest. So what we do is we build on that existing partnership that we have with NOAA. 
for using those long-term data sets, which are continuously being uh, added to as we go forward. We've also added um, additional climate stations to try and pick up things like variability in topography. So if you have a mountain within a park, there's a huge variability uh, and a huge impact that that has on air temperature, um, on precipitation, and other, other climate attributes. And that really sets the stage for what ecosystems are there. So we've actually added to that. Um, but we're still partnering with NOAA on these newer stations. And we have one actually sitting right next to the, the test walls. Um, so these relatively inexpensive but still fairly precise stations um, are in what's called the Citizens Weather Observer Program, which NOAA manages. Um, so we access that data at all of our parks, as well as all of the parks in the Guam Desert. I believe most, if not all, in the Mojave Desert and uh, throughout sort of the Southern Plains area are actively monitoring climate and weather patterns. And you said citizen data, does that interlink with citizen science, a term that's become really popular? It can. So the, the cooperative observer stations, even those, so those are sort of the traditional NOAA stations that go back a lot farther. Um, if you're as old as I am, which is old, um, or even older, you may remember the white boxes, which you would see these like louvered boxes, wooden boxes that have oh, I've, I've parks. taken data out of those. Exactly. Yeah. Most park visitor centers have those. Many of those have been replaced with automated stations, which have better okay. precision and reliability. Um, but those are, many times, those were established and operated by, by the public. Um, common in the Midwest for like farms. You know, you'd have a farmer and they would be operating that same station maybe for generations. The Citizens Weather Observer Program was an additional sort of add-on piece, and there are data sources coming in from, from all over the Southwest from folks who have these in their backyard. Um, and if people are, are interested in that, you can Google NOAA Citizen Weather Observer Program, and you can join. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and for our listeners, I'll put links in uh, on our website so that you can just click and go and see all of that data. Uh, so we have 20 test walls out here, mini kind of adobe walls that looks a bit like adobe henge. Um, and so we have four um, test levels that we'll be spraying the walls with an artificial rain machine. Can you um, tell us about the four different levels that we're spraying? Sure. So what we did was the, for this initial experiment, and this is the first and what we're seeing is the whole series of these. Um, this is a really unknown area, is my understanding, within archaeology, sort of the the sort of specific impacts that, that different uh, specific weather events could have on, on Adobe architecture and maybe um, historic architecture in general. Definitely. Um, so essentially what we, what we did was you said we're going to focus this at Tumacocri, which is Tumacocri National Historic Parks where a lot of the initial questions were, and these walls are replicating um, walls that you would know better than I are apparently from <laughs> those sites. Um, and so what we did is we went to the, the data record, and again, there's data from Dumacocri going back to the 1930s. And so that, that rich record of data gives you a lot of veracity and feeling like you can identify major rainfall events. Mm -hmm. So what we're replicating here is we have a control, which isn't truly a control. So a control would be in the sense, what would happen in a normal year? Mm -hmm. What we're actually doing with the control is completely protecting these from any rainfall. Excellent. So this is good. Our assumption is that this is our null hypothesis. There should be no change, at least not from water. Okay. There could be some wind erosion. There could be people touching the walls, and there's a little loss. But um, these should be. We should see no difference here. Then the first level of the experiment is what is the average rainfall that we would see over a 30-minute 30, 30 period in an average year. So the return frequency on these, based on this long-term data record, is what would you see in an average year? Okay. Um, that's going to be 0.71 or 71 hundredths of an inch over a 30-minute period. Um, the second level is like a 25-year storm. That's higher. I believe that's over an inch. I can't remember the number off the top of my head. And then we're, we're kind of um, 
for the, the higher end treatment, the fourth treatment, yeah. um, it's a hundred year range storm. Oh, wow. So again, it, does this mean that you get one of these in a hundred years? Not necessarily. What it's doing is, 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 is expressing the probability of how often these events might occur. Okay. You could have multiple 100 year events within a short time period. You could have fewer than that if our data record were long enough to look at that. Gotcha. So to be clear, it's not to say, hey, we got our 100 year rainfall event. We're good for the next 99. Not actually how it works. Okay. Now with climate change, we're seeing one of the more reliable predictions that we have for the Southwest um, in terms of kind of the, the finer scale that we're looking at within season patterns is for precipitation is that we'll have an increase in these sort of extreme events. And, and I know from our um, just kind of qualitative data, you know, cultural resource managers and historic preservationists talking together on, you know, standing architecture at our sites, we're seeing the effect of this, you know, these big, very intense storms are creating more damage, we think. And so that's, you know, why we're trying to start with this pilot project and, and get baseline data. Uh, and the other thing I would point out is that uh, right here in town, in Tucson here at the University of Arizona, there's a climate change response program. Um, it's a combination of the university and then the U.S. Geological Survey has a big research program. And so they're getting a lot more fine scale research data on the occurrence of these events. So what, what I mean by fine scale is sort of temporally, what's ha how often are they happening over time mm -hmm. and trying to move towards being able to predict these more. And so, again, this isn't a, a one to one. We're not saying we know how many of these uh, more extreme events are necessarily going to happen specifically at Tumacockery and it's going to get in here. Um, what the weight of evidence suggests we're going to have more of them. Right. Um, they'll be more frequent. Probably okay. not going to be on that 100 year frequency. <laughs> okay. And that data is really important for us so that we can actually uh, have a replicable experiment here uh, that leads to better management decisions in, on both the cultural and natural side. Yep. Absolutely. So it's quiet now, but um, there's been a lot of noise behind us. Can you explain uh, what you're seeing uh, behind me uh, while we've been talking? Sure. So, you know, my understanding is that um, in, the, in the archaeological world, there have been similar projects like this with test walls, but it's typically on the rainfall end, it's been literally somebody standing there with a garden hose, perhaps, which again, mm -hmm. it may be the volume of water you could measure out and be somewhat similar. Um, there's a lot more complexity to how rain actually falls and what impact it might have on, on walls or on soil. So one of the, the really fascinating collaborations that are sp spinning up out of this is not only between the, the natural resource folks and cultural resource folks with the Park Service, but we've connected with um, an agency within the U.S. Department of Agriculture called the Agriculture Research Service. And here in Tucson, they have their, their um, wildland watershed research unit. And so they've been doing for decades research on the impacts of, of different um, rainstorm events, um, as well as management treatments, grazing or burning, et cetera, um, on soil erosion. And so they've developed some really sophisticated technology for replicating rainfall. So rather than standing there with a garden hose and saying, <laughs> we put a little on, we put a lot on, we're actually using the existing climate record and the best representation science can give us for what these rainstorm events are going to look like. Excellent. So even though it sounds like uh, a um, front lawn kind of watering device, um, it's actually a nozzle uh, that's been calibrated. And, uh, and will be repeatedly calibrated throughout the, the day okay. of the experiment. Yep. Excellent. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, what are you most excited about getting out of this whole uh, endeavor? So I guess to me, I've been reporting to, to park management managers and park superintendents climate information for a long time. And that has a lot of fairly obvious natural resource purposes, maybe uh, 
planning areas that we're going to have different events or visitation um, happening, planning fire events or fire management activities, uh, trail maintenance, etc. But this to me is, is really helping to get at using natural resource data, using climate data. Uh, it's another great application that for all these cultural resource parks, this may be one of the more important data pieces you have um, to better better have an early warning of when yeah. you could expect to do these things, right? So the thing we like to always say to park managers is, you know, bad news early is always better than bad news late. If you can predict or have some indication of a problem, you're much more likely to be able to fix that problem and probably afford to fix that problem in terms of the cost and effort going in, right. you know about it early. So cool. in a sense, this is a response from, you know, I think both you and I have been hearing for a long time from folks at the park saying we need better information to predict when we need to get out there and do our preservation activities exactly. and how to plan better for it. Definitely. Cool. Well, I thank you for your partnership in this project. I know we've had some, some random setbacks and, and time delays, but um, I'm really excited that we're finally out here and, and spraying these walls. We're making it rain today. It's all going to happen. There are a yeah. variety of side bets on what, what made the outcome <laughs> of some of these heavier storms, so we'll see. Exactly. So we'll have to report back to our yeah. listeners. About Stay that. tuned. There are more experiments to come. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So Matt, this was a great project with Andy and his crew and the USDA folks and, and our team. Since that interview with Andy, we have been able to look at some of the data. Um, and even though a lot of it is what we would expect, um, uh, it's still interesting and it still is giving us a base for future work and future understanding of um, how intensified rain um, is damaging the walls and what we can do um, to mitigate that. So, for instance, um, there is some damage in just one-year storms, um, and there's damage in all of the the storm intensities on, on the surface of the walls before moisture even reached um, the center of the wall, and we know that because we had uh, moisture sensors embedded at different points in the wall. So that can tell us a lot about what kind of wall failures we might have, if it's just the surface or if it's going to be the entire wall um, or sections of a wall. We also found that there's major storm damage um, with the 25-year storms and the 100-year storms. So that gave us a lot more um, testing ideas to run with in the future. For instance, if we test a storm intensity between the one-year and the 25-year, um, that might give us a better understanding of where the, the tipping point for um, significant damage actually occurs. We also want to test a full season of storms. You know, what happens to a wall if it's not fully dried out? Does the moisture reach the center quicker? Um, so we have a long way to go before we can actually come up with some really solid management suggestions on how to mitigate damage. But um, this has been an excellent pilot project and first step. I think this project is a really fantastic example of interdisciplinary cooperation, and that's something that we've talked about in previous episodes to try to create a project that's really comprehensive. This is the perfect example of that. Cool. Well, I hope everyone out there listening is excited to hear um, updates because we'll come back and, and give you updates on the project as it unfolds.
And until next time when we have an episode focusing on Buffalo Soldiers and African-American history uh, in the Southwest and an interview with Mr. Sertain, a historical reenactor and historian. The National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast is a production of the Southern Arizona Office of the National Park Service. Our artwork was designed by Laura Varen Burkhart. Justin Mossman composed our music. We look forward to hearing from you. Matt and I will be with you again next month.